0: Come and go and I'm forever grateful. Come and tell me long and slow, exactly what I wait for. Better times, yeah, better times. Somehow I don't believe it. I built a house up long ago
1: just to up believe it. From the National Bob White Technical Committee's website, it says this. The bobwhite quail was first deemed the firebird by Herbert Stoddard, author of the 1931 classic, The Bobwhite Quail, its habits, preservation, and increase. The bobwhite quail earned this nickname as the firebird due to its positive response to prescribed fire. Prescribed fire is the purposeful application of fire to achieve a specific vegetation management objective under a prescribed set of environmental circumstances, including the season, the wind speed and wind direction, the temperature, humidity, and smoke dispersal. Prescribed fire is arguably the single most effective and cost-efficient method of habitat management for bobwhite quail. Unfortunately, fire has been excluded from much of its habitat, which is a contributing factor to bobwhite quail population declines across the majority of the United States. So for today's episode of On the Wing podcast, I'm headed to a state where they love fire. I'm headed to Missouri for a conversation with a trio of quail forever biologists who are dialing in our organization's approach to prescribed fire as a habitat management tool for Bob White Quail. With me, I've got the state coordinator for the state of Missouri, Andrew White. Wes Buckite, the Missouri prescribed fire coordinating wildlife biologist. And Dylan Jacobs, Missouri habitat specialist crew leader. So, a person in Andrew that could tell us about the big picture. Wes, who could tell us how fire is being used as a tool. And then Dylan, the guy that gets to light the match. Everybody wants to be Dylan, let's be honest. So, let's uh, go around the horn, fellas. Uh, Do some introductions, a little bit about your background and your role with the organization. We'll start with the... uh, the big Bob White in Missouri, the Missouri State Coordinator, the first family of quail. Uh, was that was that Field and Stream or Outdoor Life, Andrew?
2: Field, field and Stream, I think it was back in field. 2014, 2015. So it's been a, been a while.
1: So let's start there. I, first family of quail, there was an article that talked about your family in the interconnection with quail. So... Tell us a little bit about that story, and then lead us to your your background.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, just I might actually just start off with the background. I, you know, for as long as I can remember, growing up in Northwest Missouri, that's all we did was manage our property, um, specifically for quail. I was enrolled in CRP, uh, CP two to be specific. Um, there wasn't uh, I can't recall many times throughout the weekend or during the week really that we weren't out there doing something, whether that be working on edge feathering, down tree structures, prescribed burning, um, you know, interseeding native legumes and, and wildflowers, um, working on food plots, that's where of deal. So, you know, from there, a lot of, a lot of what uh, my father had, had learned from what we were doing and the responses um, that the quail were having on that management that we were doing, uh, you know, drove a lot of what the Missouri Department of Conservation kind of started uh, working towards on their quail management techniques across the state um, and seeing success there too. And so, you know, from that background, you know, and and being, you know, a large proponent for quail, you know, and, and doing the habitat management for them specifically, kind of just, uh, you know, really put Missouri on the map, not just because of us, but, you know, because of ev- everyone that was doing it within the department and with other partners. Um, but that was that was really cool experience to be able to tell our, our family story um, and kind of where where we came from and what we're doing, you know, to try and save save Bob White. So
1: it's intuitive, but mention your dad works for the Missouri Department of Conservation.
2: Right? Yeah, um, so he he's actually fresh in retirement. He retired after 34 years, as long as I've been alive. Um, he's been working for the conservation department. Retired last October, um, and I know I think his retirement gift was a, a new truck and just because of quail season, uh, quail and pheasant season, he put over 10,000 miles on his truck just last <laughs> fall. So um, he, he's out there, he's out there, uh, you know, reaping reaping the fruits of his labor uh, throughout his career. So he's, he's definitely enjoying retirement um, as far as I know. And I think he's actually down in Arizona this week.
1: Nice, nice. Um, it is bird dogs for habitat month. So I am gonna ask each of to, you know, put in a, a vote for your favorite breed. Um, what's, uh, what's your breed of choice? or are, are there multiple? Feel free to mention if there are multiple, but tell us about your bird dogs.
2: So there, there are multiple. Um, I grew up, uh, my first bird dog, or our family's first bird dog was a short hair named Ray. Um, and then um, back when I was uh, junior high, going into high school, um, we rescued a wire hair named Heidi. Um, both phenomenal dogs. Um, so I'm pretty partial to the wire hair and short hair. Um, <laughs> shortly after I f- started with Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever, um, my boss at the time um, found a, a wire hair for me to rescue. His name is Chief. Um, he was in the Field of Stream Mag. He's been on both uh, Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever journals multiple times. Um, we've been on the Outdoor Channel. So he's 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 definitely, having him definitely opened a lot of opportunities for me um, getting in, getting into the career field as as, as well as recreationally. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, he passed away last August, um, and I've got uh, local chapter members at hunt and raise short hairs, and so I'm back to the short hair. Um, Doug is his name. Uh, he's <laughs> six months six months old and is a ball of energy. So, um, going back to my roots as a short hair owner. So it's been it's been fun. It's been fun for sure.
1: All right. I, I gotta ask Doug. I've never heard of a dog named Doug before. So what's the name (laughs) reference?
2: So my wife, Sarah and I, well, really it was me. I have trouble finding the perfect name and you know, with a bird dog, you have to have the perfect name. Hmm. Can't, you know, your buddies can't make fun of you in the field. You know, it's gotta be, you know, one or two syllables easy, you know, easy to call out. And so I had a list of like 50 names and, uh, could not. I got it narrowed down to about thirty, and then um, we, my wife and I, celebrated narrowed
1: down. <laughs> yeah, my
2: uh, my wife and I celebrated our, our first year and uh, wedding anniversary last November, and took a trip down to uh, Disney World and all the Disney parks. We were standing there, and I was like, well, "What about?" Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Up, but I asked her, "I was like, what is that that dog that's just really goofy off of off of that movie?" And she, and she said, "Kevin." I said, "No, that's the bird." And she said, "Oh, Doug," and I said, "How's that work?" And right there, you know, that was that sealed his fate. So it's not, it's it's not the traditional name, you know, spelling of the name that we know with the O. It's just D U G, Um, Mm. which is actually pretty funny because that's all he wants to do is burrow under blankets, and so it's it's uh, it fits his personality too because he's. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but he's exactly like that dog.
1: I I have not seen the movie unfortunately I'll I'll have to I'll have to uh, look it up and watch it, it uh, Do you have any friends that you hunt with named Doug?
2: Not that I'm aware of, not yet anyway.
1: Well, keep it that way because <laughs> for a guy that's hunted with a dog named Bob, um, being dropped the f bomb, come here, Bob. <laughs> And then getting confused between it, uh, this is a story i brought up multiple times about Matt Morlock. Once upon a time, had a dog named yeah. Bob, and yep. I hunted with him, and it was extraordinarily confusing, <laughs> but <laughs> it made for a fun story. Oh, for
2: sure. I can imagine. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, we had the Midwest Leadership Meeting there back at the end of January, and I, I heard the full story. I'd heard bits and pieces over the years, but was able to get the full story last or this past (laughs) January so definitely one for the books
1: yeah right on. all right let's let's move along to uh to Wes our Missouri prescribed fire coordinating wildlife biologist tell us a little bit about your background Wes
0: well it's funny Andrew was talking about having a list of 50 plus names for his dog my wife and I are expecting our second child in less than two weeks, and our list wasn't near that, that <laughs> expansive.
1: Uh, well, congratulations.
0: Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited. So I, I grew up uh, hunting and fishing on the family farm, and that included deer, turkey, rabbit, squirrel, but it didn't include include quail. Uh, hmm. Got out with some family friends once, chasing birds whenever I was, probably around 12 in Missouri. And in Missouri, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, it wasn't until you know joining the the PFQF team that I really got to uh, go quail hunting more. You know, we would make an annual trip, uh, all try and get together for the opener and hunt as a team. So, mm-hmm. that's where I got to, to really um, experience it more. And so I, you know, talking about bird dogs for habitat. Uh, I have to go with the, the German short hair pointer as far as the birds. I really just enjoyed working behind them and and how they were working the field. So that'd be my vote.
1: Well, you'll get no argument from me. And for <laughs> listeners, I I did not set it up this way, <laughs> but it just happens that the short hair is popular within our crowd. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do for the organization, Wes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so in this new role, I've been in this for uh, a year now and as the Prescribed Fire Coordinating Biologist. And so it's a statewide role and the overall arching goal is to increase the capacity for prescribed fire for this critical land management tool. Uh, you know, at the statewide level and specifically on, on private land in Missouri, you know, Missouri is 93% privately owned. So if we're going to be making impacts, we want to focus on on those lands.
1: Got so it. I'll, so yeah, go ahead. I,
0: you know, part of my role is, you know, providing technical assistance to landowners, to our, our team, our chapters, and to our partners, help coordinate trainings. And then uh, part of that is also supporting the Missouri Prescribed Fire Council.
1: Okay. So if if we think about Andrew's role as a state coordinator, he's looking at, all the partner relationships, all the habitat work we do, all variety of things. Whereas your role is is pretty focused on prescribed burning, correct?
0: Yeah, that's that's the main main goal of my position is focusing on this management tool and working with our partners, working with folks across the state to increase the safe use of it.
1: Sweet. And we'll, uh, we'll rotate to uh, Dylan, who rounds out our, our group here, and we take it to the on-the-ground level. Dylan, you're, you're titled Missouri Habitat Specialist Crew Leader. So I'm guessing that you have the most fun of anybody. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for the organization.
3: Yeah, so I'm originally from rural Northwest Ohio, um, kind of grew up in very agricultural dominated landscape. Um, always was outside, um, did a lot of gardening with the family. we have done a small little kind of hobby farm. we um, was just always outside and enjoyed it and kind of followed that that passion. Uh, went to school up there at Bowling Green State University and, and got my degree in biology and kind of fell into fire. Started volunteering with the Nature Conservancy. My Final semester of college, skipping class, going to burn,
2: mm. um,
3: and they hired me right out of right after graduation. Um, spent about five years with them, worked in Arkansas, North Carolina, and Ohio, working with them um, before I, before I landed here. Um, so this role was pretty pretty unique, um, kind of changing the way of just working on preserves like we did at the Nature Conservancy to kind of focus out and branch out to private lands. So we've got a crew of three. Um, most of my time is spent kind of planning and implementing habitat management practices. Um, our main focus is fire, but we also do timber stand improvement and cedar cutting, and hmm. do some invasive work and and all of that. So um, pretty good, pretty good time. Um, hands down, favorite bird dog is the visla um, A little partial. <laughs> I got a rescue about six years ago. Um, his name's Waldo. Um, He's a he's a mix. He's not a full blooded, but you know, just such a beautiful breed. Um, awesome personality, super loyal, um, and yeah, such a strong eye. And they're really serious when they when they point. They they mean it.
1: They they mean it. And so, are you familiar with the the nickname for what what people reference Vicholas as? The Velcro dog. Yeah. yeah. So the Velcro dog that they that they just spawn super tight to their owners. Have you found that to be, um,
3: to be true? Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, he actually was, a he was kind of the crew dog when I was in Arkansas, he traveled with us all over the state. We roamed the whole state. Um, we'd stay in, in camp and he was in the fire engine every day. He was on every mm-hmm. burn with us. He'd, he'd just get tied out when we, once we lit the match, but he, uh, He's been by my side. He's been loyal, and that's definitely it's definitely true. That Velcro dog is is spot on.
1: So I get grief during the bird dog parade every year when I equate the Velcro to what I'm going to say next. So I want to get your honest reaction. Uh, are you
3: a Simpsons fan, Dylan? It, uh, a little bit, but it's been a, it's been a long time. Uh,
1: so when, when I watch Simpsons and I see dog named Santa's little helper From I think that's a Vishla that's gotta be a Vishla you might be right yeah (laughs) so does that make you happy or pissed off that I would equate Santa's
3: little helper to a Vishla I think Santa's little helper might be a whippet but (laughs) (laughs) most people want to kick my ass when I equate Santa's little
1: helper to a (laughs) Vishla All right. What other uh, is sort of an odd question for you. I, I sort of teased early on, like you have the most fun, right? Like there is a sense of excitement, a thrill with being able to, you know, light things on fire for a living. Let's be straight, like direct. It's it's. So when you meet, you know, think about yourself and think about people in your role. You know, prescribed fire is an incredibly important habitat management tool. Um, is there an element of, like, pyromania uh, <laughs> in your personality, in people like you? Or is it like, no, like, that's that's not um, a, a trait that's in my DNA? Like, how do you, how do you answer something like that?
3: I think there's definitely something there. Um, I've definitely got a knack for fire. I've, I mean, I have campfires, brush fires, all the time on my property. Um, it's always fun to get out and, and light the match. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a management tool, but it, it, there is something there. It's fun, I enjoy it. Um, it's really an art. The more you work with fire, the hmm. more the more it becomes an art and, and how you apply it to the landscape and work with it. it it really is you know drip torch it's it's a tool but it's really a paintbrush to me
1: that's a really fascinating i wasn't expecting like it's an art like you you know i i think of it as you know um there's a respect that you must have built in for the power of fire and i you know i read some of these variables from herbert stoddard early and i know we're going to talk about them humidity and wind and there's some science I wasn't thinking about your response being art that's that's super fascinating I, explain that a little like you know the idea that it's a paintbrush for you that's that's wild
3: yeah I mean you know you're applying fire on the landscape and you know once you once you let it go it's it's out and about and it's it's all about watching what it's doing and you know kind of reading reading the fire and letting it talk to you. Um, uh, you know your ignition techniques everything kind of changes based on what you're seeing and what the fire is telling you um, and how you you know add more fire to the ground it's, it really is kind of art how it pulls together um, you know the objectives and the effects of the fire it it all plays a role I
1: that's 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 really fascinating you know some of the words you use and how it talks to you and um, Wes, it looks like you want to weigh
0: Yeah, that was really, really cool the way Dylan presented it there. And it's definitely, a, there's an art and a science. Mm-hmm. You know, we use a lot of the science in planning and prepping our burn units for safety and meeting our objectives. But like Dylan said, once you get fire underground, you know, it's really, you know, evaluating, looking at that fire. How's it responding? Because it's a very dynamic uh, interaction. And so... Mm-hmm. It's just constantly watching that fire behavior, and and then that tells us, you know, what we need to do, with, you know, with the crews, and as you mentioned, ignition uh, techniques, and and how we're, you know, furthering, you know, continuing to conduct that burn. Mm-hmm.
1: That's <clears throat> that's really fascinating because you think about it, it's like okay, it's influenced by weather, it's influenced by the fuel, and all of those things. Like there's not. You know, I put together an outline for this podcast, right? So so there's flow. Trying to do an outline for a, a burn is similar. It's, it's purely an outline and where the conversation leads, you just don't know until you start to read people, start to read the fire. It, it purely is an outline, isn't it? It's, it is a dance between a plan and being... Using your brain and your intuition enough to adapt to it, which is where kind of the art comes into it. That's um, really, really fascinating. Um, we're gonna come back to Dylan, come back to Wes, talk about some more specifics. Um, I want to start, and you know, we're already down the road a little bit, but let's let's build the foundation, Andrew. Like, why? Are, why is fire? so important for quail and, and i've mentioned this before there there are multiple upland game birds that are considered firebirds you know bob boy quail sharp-tailed grouse like why why is fire such an important and valuable habitat tool for the uplands
2: yeah absolutely <clears throat> i mean you know I, i'm sure our fellow listeners a bulk of them are, are hunters um, if you're going out into you know some habitat that is just rank you can barely walk through it you're getting tripped up on it just think of a quail you know they're, they're eight ounces you know fully mature their chicks are no bigger than the size of your thumbnail um, and so fire is incredibly important to kind of reset that succession and get that bare ground component that quail absolutely need um, as well as as well as diversifying the, the vegetative cover um, mm-hmm. that that is uh, critical for for the survival uh and population inclines for quail um you know kind of looking at it a a bit further you know if you're burning on rotation i'm sure wes and dylan will get into this a little bit more but if you're burning on rotation you'll have varying levels of succession um that creates so much more edge on top of being a fire a fire species quail is also an edge species Mm -hmm. um they they thrive on the edges i mean to you look just about anywhere that you get into a covey they're on an edge whether that be woody cover edge you know between you know native grasses wildflowers and woody cover they're an edge species and so by by incorporating fire into your management regime you're going to create so much more edge utilized uh, by quail uh, benefiting them further
1: mm-hmm. i think about you know i talked with bill palmer uh from tall timbers and you know tallahassee florida and he talked about like Boy, in Florida, with the growing season so long, like you, know, you got to do prescribed burns every two years. Otherwise, as you talked about, like the understory, you know, when a quail chicks the size of your thumb and, you know, three years, four years, that understory is just choked out. They can't even move. So mm-hmm. think about, like, their ability to find food, escape predators, and, like, just sit in ducks, sit in quail. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, can yeah. As you move north, that growing season shortens, but I'm guessing there's still, like, we probably don't even conceive how frequently prescribed burning needs to take place, even in a state like Missouri, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's all, obviously all your vegetation growth is all relative to precipitation, your annual precipitation. In Missouri, Mm -hmm. you know, that two to three years, I mean, we're shooting for a three-year rotation, we're burning um because again that that creates that succession uh, level difference um but yeah it's it's you can get into some stuff that i've hunted in the past even here in north missouri where i'm at where it's been five six years and yeah there might be quail there but they're right next to the field roads they're right next to crop field or food plot they're not out in the grass where you would traditionally find them Um, and so by doing that, you're, like I said, you know, you're, you're kind of maximizing on the usability of that area.
1: So when you bring prescribed fire to the landscape, how, how quickly do you see quail respond by, you know, population increases, um, after a fire,
2: yeah, it's all, it's all the, kind of relative on what your, your local population is. Um, I've seen where, you know, I've worked with landowners previously before being a state coordinator. I was a farm bill biologist for 10 years uh, here in Missouri. Um, working with those private landowners, you know, they would be, their farm, even though they had immaculate habitat, upland habitat, they were a postage stamp in a, in a sea of crop. Um, there, there was no connectivity. There was, was no corridors that, uh, you know, wildlife could use. Um, And so it took some time to get, you know, get birds back on the property, but eventually they did. Um, Whereas, you know, south of here, um, we've got a a quail restoration landscape um, where I've worked with private landowners where they have uh, an insane amount of of wild quail on their property. And it's almost instantaneous um, as far as, you know, the turnaround on on birds being back in that area. Um, You know, a lot of times, People, whenever they're looking to burn, and I know Dylan can attest to this, and even Wes, but a lot of times when people think of a prescribed burn, they think of completely down to bare mineral soil. There's nothing left. Um, but patchy burns are good too. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, And you'll see with those patchy burns, the automatic, I mean, no sooner is the last flame out and the, the last plume of smoke died down that there's birds already back in there um, that I've okay. seen and, and witnessed personally.
1: Uh, so, I want to come back to a word. You mentioned quail restoration landscape, but you know, first thing I want to hit on is like the criticism with prescribed burning, particularly, you know, in our mind, my mind, think about it, it snow melts and you do a burn in the spring and that's when quail pheasants, you name it, are nesting. So it's like, God, that that's kind of a shitty result because you're going to end up burning birds up or burning eggs up i mean they do have wings they can fly away but like how do you decide like yeah the the juice is worth the squeeze with a burn um particularly in nesting season and i know that's not the only time you burn but that's a heavy time mm. to burn.
2: yeah 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 you know, specifically in north missouri i mean that's that's a lot of the burn season is, is spring burns Um, you know, we also have folks burning in in the dormant season, which is ultimately best. We can get into that a little bit later, but, um, you know, kind of looking at, you know, going back to the science of burning on a rotation, you know, as biologists, we really push um, on these burn plans to, you know, each field, you know, up up to a half, a third to a half, that's kind of what you want and then leaving the the rest of that go and then three-year is absolutely perfect because if you're on a three-year burn rotation which is pretty typical here in, in in the state you know you burn one one paddock of that field that first year and then leave it go and then by the time you get back to it they'll have three years of growth and so you're having three areas within that one field of varying succession and so while you know the the i think the misconception lies on when people think of prescribed fire they think of like uh you know out on the foot hills where they're just burning Mm. a thousand acres at a time Um, and there's there's and dylan will probably get into this but there's been burns where they've you know done hundreds of acres at a time but they're still as part of that rotation Um, and while you might be you know removing habitat usable habitat in that one area there's still usable habitat within that field immediately adjacent to it so that's that's really where the science comes into play for sure Um, and making sure that you're still leaving leaving some some room for them to to be able to utilize that and stay there locally
1: really comes into you know your previous comments about patchy burns and rotations you know it is you're right like uh, a lot of the general public's mentality and i've categorized myself in there too it's like lighting a match and a thousand acres of grasslands you know just taking off and it's more while it's a while it's an art we've learned that a, a little bit from dylan there is a science to the biology of it where you're not in a state like Missouri, highly populated. You don't have a contiguous grassland where you can just do a thousand acres at one crack. Exactly. Yep. You know, you are trying to patch burn it so birds can move to a different piece of ground. You reinvigorate another patch and then it's an active management. It's a little bit different than maybe, you know, we think about in the Great Plains, for instance, where you are Mm -hmm. lighting a match and doing, or you know, the national grasslands and uh, the Fort Pier grasslands or the Grand Mm -hmm. River grasslands There's a little bit different here when we're talking about private landowners.
2: Yep. And Um, another another facet to that would be, um, you know, woody encroachment. You know, I know a lot mm -hmm. of the Midwest states have issues with eastern red cedar, Um, you know, (laughs) the, <laughs> we have a, a running joke in Missouri that the best cedar is a dead cedar. Um, you know, you can utilize that for, for woody cover um, through, through down tree structures or edge feathering. But, you know, keeping a burn on rotation allows, you know, to keep that woody encroachment at bay. Um, and a lot of, you know, we live in oak forests down here in Missouri and um, oak hickory forests. And keep, keeping that woody encroachment at bay allows the expression of those native species Um, that that quail definitely depend on as well as pollinators
1: we've done entire podcasts devoted to the destruction of the need to destroy eastern red cedars for the sake of grasslands and sage grouse and lesser prairie chickens and just um, a a point, people, you know you can do a quick search um, particularly the episodes about the Great Plains, Kansas, Nebraska, where Eastern Red Cedars are just choking out um, the grasslands habitat. So folks are thinking like, whoa, Eastern Red Cedars make great winter cover for shelter belts. Um, that's not true, particularly as you cross the Great Plains and in, in the West, Idaho. I mean, there's, there's tons of people in dollars being devoted to ripping those Eastern Red Cedars out. Not only to improve grassland habitat, but also the amount of water that they take up, and you know, ultimately destroy aquif- aquifers along with grassland. So, um, I- another episode you can listen to: um, Re- Recovering America's Wildlife Act, the rawa episode about what uh, Easter red cedars have done to so many different species of birds. But I've I've gone on long enough. You you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, the quail restoration landscape, which is a, hmm? a term that comes up when you, you know, as I prep for Missouri um, prescribed burning podcast. It's a term that pops up on the Missouri Department of Conservation website. Tell us what a quail restoration landscape means.
2: Yeah, so, so in Missouri, I mean, we're, we're very diverse. We have all sorts of natural communities across the state. Um, and with that comes prior- priority geographies where, you know, the Missouri Department of Conservation, uh, as well as NRCS and our other partners, you know, focus focus efforts on those on those areas. Um, quail restoration landscape is a component of that priority geography matrix, um, and it these these restoration landscapes are, you know, the the focus obviously is quail. Um, and so it, a lot of it has to. It covers quite a bit of area at times. I mean, there's one just south of here, the 2C QRL. Um, it, it covers two counties, um, where we have some smaller ones that are just you know a few thousand acres. Um, but it's where uh, intensive management is happening on on a private land, um, on private lands within those quail restoration landscapes. And so it's where the department, um, Quail Forever Missouri. As well as other partners are focusing more efforts on on some of these quail restoration projects that are going on in the state. Um, you know, cost share levels are a little bit higher in those areas as an incentive for for landowners to to uh, do this habitat management in there. Um, and and we've seen a lot of a lot of really good uh, response in there. Um, you know, we've we've been part of a ten year study with uh, the National Bob White Grasslands Initiative um, where we're been doing breeding bird surveys in the spring and cubby counts in the fall. Um, And they're here locally on the 2C uh, quail restoration landscape. We've seen where they're doing the the intensive management and using fire as a primary management tool. We're seeing an abundance of of wild birds back in that area, not just quail. I mean, you're looking at grassland species like uh, grasshopper sparrows, bobolinks, ringneck pheasants, which we do have them in Missouri. They're few and far between. Um, but, you know, some of those areas where that intensive management is happening and active management is happening, we're seeing numbers bounce back up for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. I recall, the, so the um, National Bobwhite Conservation Initiative, in Northern Bobwhite, NBCI, the very first county in the country to achieve its, its population increase for management was it Was a Carroll County, Missouri? Yep. It was one of those two C's that you're yep. talking about. Carroll County, yes, Missouri. Sir. And it does relate back to prescribed fire. It's it's mm-hmm. the number one management tool. And, you know, all the, I think it's 24 states that are part of the MBCI in the very first county was Carroll County, Missouri, to achieve those population responses for Bob Boy Quail, it relates back to exactly what you're talking about. Prescribed burning. I mean, it's not a secret. Yep. It's just, yep. it's an incredibly important tool.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, on this, we kind of wrapped up um, the last year, um, this past October. Um, and I, I personally have been a part of that study uh, since I started as a farm biologist. Um, so the past 10 years I've been working on that. Um, and whenever you're getting to again uh, to the point where you're losing track of the amount of coveys that are out there. Um, mm. I was consistent, the last two years, last three years, I was consistent, consistently losing count at about 20, 21 coveys each fall, just on that one listening point. And it's got wow. a 500 meter, 500 meter listening area. Um, and not only that, but going out and flushing some of those coveys to get some covey numbers. I mean, you're looking at, you know, 20, 30 bird coveys and, and higher. I mean, it's it's insane. Um, that you know that that qrl that you're talking about within that within that uh you know that managed area where we were doing that study uh we're we're over a bird per acre which is absolutely phenomenal um it's we've got another area in the state over in northeast on the B ridge qrl um, and they're they're posting some pretty good numbers over there as well so it's not just localized it's absolutely replicable anywhere in the state hmm. Um, it's just getting that, that private landowner base to be open to the idea and be open to the, the management suggestions and, and uh, prescriptions that are not only a QF biologist, but, you know, a private lands biologist with a conservation department are, you know, writing in these management plans um, and getting, getting those landowners on board is absolutely key.
1: Yeah, right on. All right, let's, let's talk more specifics about fire. And that's where we'll go to our artists Uh, Dylan, um, tell us a little bit about how you like what's your thought process, Dylan, when you're approaching a burn. You know, a landowner is like, Okay, I want to burn this. Talk me through what you're thinking,
3: right? So, step one is really just what are your habitat goals and, and what condition, you know, is the stand in currently. Um, are you is it in good shape? Does it just need a maintenance burn, you know, a nice dormant season burn? Or does it have woody encroachment? Does it need, you know, some fire at different time of the year to, to kind of knock back some of those woodies? So that's kind of step one is identifying really what your goals are and kind of what condition your your burn units in right now. Um, so once you identify that, then you can start to put together a prescription and a plan to kind of meet those, those, those objectives.
1: When, when you talk woody... You know, I, obviously, well, my mind says you're talking trees. Um, is that the case? Or are shrubs a component to that? Um, and if, if you're talking trees, like, are we talking, like, oaks, um, Easter red cedars, like, and I'm guessing all that's at play. And some of those burns are going to require more intense, heavier, um, heavier, heavier burns than what you described as a maintenance burn like what you know what are you what are you evaluating there
3: right so i mean a lot of our grasslands haven't been burned in a while we're going to get eastern red cedar popping up Um, but also we get invasives too we've got autumn olive and and honeysuckle Mm -hmm. and privet those all kind of can move in from the edge as well um you know and some of our woodlands again you know honeysuckle popping up a lot of maples popping up getting that musification of our forest um trying to set back some of those species so you know it doesn't necessarily mean you need a hotter burn sometimes it might need to be a slow burn a nice backing a backfire nice and slow that residual heat at the base of that woody stem will Hmm. knock it back sometimes better than a quick head fire
1: Hmm. Um, so if you're if you're coming through and you're like okay we got maybe there's a stand that's um has grown just six it's went for early successional to what I would categorize as a forest, right? Like, um, but you want to knock it back. So the landowner maybe is like, okay, this has grown into deer and turkey woods, but I want to reclaim it as more grassland for Bobway. Are you coming in there with chainsaws and cutting stuff down and then burning it? Is that kind of the process?
3: Right, yeah. Some of those, Some of those stands that have kind of gotten too far gone, as we call it, um, they do tend to require some sort of either mechanical or chemical treatment beforehand, either from hack and squirt TSI or some chainsaw TSI. You know, we we do quite a bit of hack and squirt on, on sugar maple here, and, and hack, a lot of cedars.
1: Uh, we got you know, to <laughs> hack and squirt.
3: Hack and squirt. Yeah. Which means so, what? Right. So you just you go into the stand and you basically just have a hatchet. Uh, yep. And you kind of frill. Drill the cambium layer and squirt a little herbicide yeah. into into those target species, and and you know over a couple months they'll, they'll die back, and you'll get you know the canopy open back up a little bit, sunlight hitting the ground. Um, really effective, um, you know it's quick, it's a lot quicker than going out with a chainsaw. It's not so mm-hmm. labor intensive, mm-hmm. um, but a really effective tool for landowners. It's it's not going to be that quick response where the trees are on the ground. They're still going to be standing, but you know they're they're going to be standing dead and just kind of get that slow recovery. Sunlight reaching the ground, and kind of over a couple years, you'll you'll really notice a big change.
1: So we taught I talked with Andrew here just a moment ago about season, picking the season for a burn. I'm assuming that's, you know, once you know the landowner's goals, right? Like what you're trying to achieve. I'm assuming one of the next decision points is, what time of year do I burn to help achieve those goals? how do you decide that?
3: Right, so there's lots of different things go into it, and it just depends on what your objective is. Again, if, if you've got like a heavy grass field um, and you need some more forb diversity in there, burning it kind of late, late summer, early fall is really good at that. Hmm. It exposes those, uh, the crowns to those grasses over the winter and you know they get kind of beat up over the harsh months um, and they won't come back as thick in the spring. Well, in the meantime, you're having bare ground and you're getting better germination of the forb seeds that are already there. Just waiting to have a chance. Hmm. Um, so that's just, I mean, that's just one example, of, you know, knocking back some woody species, um, you know, burning kind of summer burn, July, August, um, while those woodies are leafed out and all their resources and nutrients are up at the top hmm. you put a fire through there. They don't have, they don't have much to pull back down to their roots in the winter and it really puts the hurting on those.
1: Okay. Spring burns. Spring burns tend to be what most, the general public thinks about, like the, the it, at least it, my perception is it's the safest time, which is why a lot happens, right? And it's before things start greening up. So you have an ability to burn all the duff, um, all the dead material. You know, am I thinking about that right? Why does it all have, why does so much prescribed fire happen in the spring?
3: You know, I think it, it really is just weather, and and uh, I think we've kind of gotten stuck stuck in a rut of burning in the in the spring. Mm. I think we need to kind of broaden our broaden our horizon on that. I think it's just kind of got stuck in the mindset of you know burn after winter. It is you know it is a good time. You know weather conditions are nice. It's nice out. Things are drying up, and and you will get that quick response and quick green up afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, you know. Burning in the fall is good too. Um, hmm. it, you, gotta you got to be careful. You need to leave cover. You know, if you're burning a grassland or something, you, you definitely want to leave unburned places because I mean, you definitely need cover to get wildlife through the winter. Right. But burning in the fall is just as good, and, and you know it expands the amount of days you can burn in a year. Um, here in Missouri, you know, it's big deer hunting season. So nobody wants the woods burned, you know, come November. Sure. Um, and, and our crew kind of tries to push that. We find landowners who maybe aren't big deer hunters and they're like, go ahead and burn it in the winter. Hmm. And and it works out good. So we can we can get more fire on the ground by kind of expanding that burn window. But yeah, spring, it is a good time to burn. Um, you know, things aren't sitting there barren all winter. you have got cover through the winter and then kind of burn it off and get that quick green up, quick response. Um,
1: um, uh, Andrew, I noticed you wanted to make a comment.
2: Yeah. And, and kind of build on what, what Dylan was saying, kind of looked at the biological, biological aspect of it, you know, your, your spring burns, what's, what's growing in the early spring, cool season grass. If you're, if you're, you know, working with a native field, um, that, that'll help push that back. Whereas if you do look at a late summer burn in August, September, you're going to set back your natives, um, which mm. is going to allow a flush of, of native wildflowers and for or forbs and and uh, legumes that that next spring um which is a great pollinator habitat and brood breeding habitat um then in your dormant your dormant season especially burn on rotation um you know pollinators are you know the spotlight is is being shine on them a lot lot uh, more in focus um and so by burning you know in dormant season um you know you're you're able to uh, keep you know, burning on rotation, you're not slicking everything off. Um, you know, and having that rotation, you're basically providing overwintering habitat for a lot of those beneficial uh, fords and or beneficial insects um, that are that are crucial for pollination as well.
1: Wes, looked like you wanted to add on too.
0: Yeah, what Dylan was talking about. Some folks will be hesitant to burn in the fall because of their their hunting opportunities coming up, and you know, in our farm. Uh, you know i had the prescribed burn association assisted me with the burn and it was early november right before our our deer season and it didn't change the use Hmm. of that area by the deer at all you know in fact i've had i've had times where i'm going around the unit late in the evening just checking on things after the burns completed had turkeys out there just kicking through, trying to, you know, scratching up new stuff, mm-hmm. deer out there. Next morning you'll go out and you'll see all sorts of deer tracks. And so they're not going anywhere. They're very curious animals. They'll be right back to it. So it's mm-hmm. a really, really good tool. I don't want like, people to be scared of pushing their wildlife away.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's one thing to keep in mind, like prescribed fire is natural or just fire in general, right? Like, yeah, the prescribed word is, you know, human induced but fire has existed (laughs) as long as the planet has been here so uh you know wildlife can adapt to the results of a fire very quickly it's actually to the point of this entire podcast extremely beneficial to everything that they need food cover you name it um so uh, i want to circle back dylan so we Say we've identified this this season. Now, you know, the the obvious thing to me is like, when you're picking the conditions for when to light the match, you're, I'm assuming you're hoping for a calm day, right? Like the first thing you wanna think about is wind. That may be um, naive. Uh, You know, in the Herbert Stoddard quote I mentioned, You know, there's wind, there was temperature, there was humidity. So explain, Dylan, to me your perfect day to get out the drip torque paintbrush and create habitat. What is there a perfect day? What what are the what are the conditions you're looking for or you're evaluating?
3: Right. So first and foremost, yeah, wind's really important. Um you don't want the calmest day, you you need that wind for you know it helps move the fire through the landscape um you know some days you'll burn and it won't be very windy and the fire just doesn't want to move and you're sitting there all day trying to get it to burn hmm. um so you want a little bit of wind um and you want you know don't want that wind to kind of line up with what's around you making sure you're not smoking out a highway or an airport um, so looking at your wind direction your wind speed um, and then your relative humidity is really important how dry your fuels are going to be how dry the air is hmm. um You know, we burn down to mid 20s, 20% RH. That's on the low end. A lot of our woodland burns are done in, you know, 40%, high 40s. Even after a couple of really dry days, we can burn in the the low low 50s. Um, Grassland burns, you can, you know, you can can burn those on a little bit, you know, 50% RH or more. Um, Hmm. But looking at your humidity is really important. It's, you know, how how hot things are gonna burn, how likely it is for the fire to, you know, start a spot fire. If it's really, really dry and relative humidity is low, and you get an ember across the line, the chances of it sparking up are gonna go up. Hmm. Um, Other things to look at is like our ventilation rate um, and our mixing height, that kind of tells us how high our smoke is gonna go up or if it's gonna go up and out at all. Um, Hmm. You know, if your mixing height's really low, your smoke's gonna go up and hit that hit that point and it's just kind of going to trail off um and you know if you've got communities nearby you know that smoke's not gonna not gonna go where you want it necessarily you want it to go up and out so looking at that and the ventilation rate will will kind of tell you where your smoke's going to go which is really important and something some people don't even think about
1: yeah I, i i would know so mixing rate and ventilation rate that's how high the flames are leading to the smoke and then the smoke getting out of the, kind of the visible atmosphere?
3: Right, it's where the layers of the atmosphere kind of mix. Um, so when huh. you transport wind speeds up up aloft, um, you've got, you know, winds up high, moving moving in the upper atmosphere and kind of where our lower atmosphere, um, where those two levels meet is kind of where the smoke is gonna mix and disperse. Huh. So if it's really low, your smoke's not gonna go very high and it's not going to disperse very well. But if you got, you know, if it's really high that day and lift is good, then that's great. You know, smoke's going to go up and, and out where you want it to go.
1: Huh. Wes, you wanted to make a point.
0: Yeah, yeah, that mixing height is how high that smoke is going to go before the transport winds, then move it in that direction. But I was going to, Mentioned Bob, you kind of led into this topic about calm wind, and it just made me made me kind of cringe. <laughs> I hear I hear the stories from folks of uh, trying for fire, and you know we picked a calm day, uh-huh. and it, it the fire was just kind of erratic, and, and that is the case. Low wind speed. Uh, when, whenever you're looking at a very calm day, you know that fire is going to create its own wind mm. and move the way it wants to. So whenever we're looking to conduct a prescribed burn, we're looking for, you know, a a forecast wind speed, you know, minimum like four to five mile an hour. And so that gives us a consistent wind speed and wind direction that it's more predictable. We know how to plan and and conduct that burn and, and manage it more safely.
1: Yeah, right, so that's, as you explain it, it makes total sense, right? Like it's predictable. Then you know it, it winds out of the west, ten miles an hour. It's like, well, we know where the fire could go, so you can plan around that. When it's just, you know, two miles an hour and calm, it's like, well, it's kind of a dice roll, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely helps. Like you said, being able to predict what that fire wants to do and yeah. helps us helps us in the planning.
1: So, Wes, I'm going to let you finally kind of speak and direct some questions your, your way about how FIRE has really uh, become a major tool and initiative in the state of Missouri. Before I go there, um, I want to uh, recognize again that it is Bird Dogs for Habitat Month, whether you love short hairs, wire hairs, or Santa's Little Helper. The Vishla, <laughs> no offense to anybody, the Vishla, the Velcro dog. Uh, go to birddogsforhabitat.org, our online popularity contest for bird dogs with a purpose. It runs the entire month of April, and every donation you make a uh, dollar, $30, $500 for a bird dog life membership those dollars all equate to votes in support of your favorite bird dog breed. And new this year, all those dollars are going to our Build a Wildlife Area program to create new public lands for you and your bird dog to roam. This week is the Rufflin Kennels week, and uh, one lucky donor is going to win a Rufflin Kennel. Uh, thanks to Rufflin Kennels for being a sponsor of Bird Dogs for Habitat. Also, thanks to Orvis, Perina Pro Plan. Sport Dog brand electronic training, dog training systems, and the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association. Thanks so much to all being partners at Bird Dogs for Habitat. Place your vote at birddogsforhabitat.org. All right, so uh, Wes, we, Andrew talked about the importance of prescribed fire on a big scale for quail, why that. you know creates early successional habitat and we've gone through kind of the blow by blow of how a burn plan you know is is executed but there is that hurdle there the public image like how how did this become sort of embraced adopted structured in the state of missouri from your perspective
0: you no. Know, from what i've seen is that The general public and landowners are supportive of prescribed fire. I haven't seen, you know, major pushback uh, about this practice. And so, uh, you know, as Andrew mentioned, we have our staff and other conservation partners out on the landscape working one-on-one with landowners. And whenever that, whenever prescribed fire is mentioned and recommended, you know, they're saying, well, that sounds good, but I just don't know about it. That scares me. Hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's training that folks can attend, um, to, to get that, uh, base level of, of knowledge. But what we, what we find is that people just have that hurdle of applying it on their land because Mm. they're, they don't have those opportunities to to gain the hands-on experience where we learn a lot about fire. As Dylan talked about, we're watching it, we're seeing how it behaves. And so that's, that's one critical step is gaining that firsthand experience. Um, and so, you know, in Missouri, people want to move, want to use this tool, and we have really good partners that recognize that as well. Um, you know, NRCS is, uh, has changed up their policy to enable um, their staff to provide more technical assistance to landowners with prescribed fire, and actually gain hands-on experience as well. Um, and then we had really good support from, um, you know, the funders of, of my position and Dylan and the Habitat crew that recognized that, Hey, we need more, we need more prescribed fire on the landscape. Mm -hmm. And so being able to work, work with these, uh, groups to, to get more privately and prescribed burning done.
1: Yeah. You mentioned, um, the partners, the donors, Missouri department of conservation, Shaw Nature Center, or I'm sorry, Shaw Nature Reserve, Rosalind Alternative Energy, Perina, and the Merritts family. There are people that really do see the value of prescribed fire and have made contributions, um, particularly through our Call the Uplands campaign, to help build infrastructure. Around prescribed fire for Bob bobwhite quail specifically in the state of Missouri, It tell us a little bit about that infrastructure. How much, um, how much effort we have placed in building a team to put this on the landscape?
0: Yeah. So um, one of the first things was, uh, you know, the creation of of my position, uh, which is being able to dedicate one hundred percent efforts and time to prescribed fire mm. and. You um, know, to work with these partners and, and bring everybody to the table and and work towards these solutions. Um, our staff are you know we we have a new standard operating procedures and so we have things lined out where our staff can participate and assist on prescribed burns and provide some of that mentorship to landowners. Uh, and then Dylan and the habitat crew just knocking it out of the park as far as getting getting fire in the ground, making those habitat improvements. It also provides that opportunity if that, you know, if they're working with the private landowner, that landowner wants to observe or participate on that burn. Hmm. Uh, but just being there firsthand, learning about it, it leads towards them potentially saying, okay, I've seen this done on my property. I think I can work, you know, with my family, my neighbor's friends, and, and we can move towards this and use this tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, down the road and continue that management.
1: I, I'm assuming, like one of the you know, most of the goals when you're talking through this with a landowner, like increase wildlife populations, is at the top of the list. Particularly, you know, we're quail forever. Why would why else would they be coming to us? You know, they want to improve their bobwhite population. But I'm also thinking one of the surprise. Elements after prescribed fire relates back to what Andrew talked about, like a burn that releases the native pollinators and legumes. Like I'm projecting here that a landowner that goes through a prescribed fire and then like three months later, they're walking through their property and it's a glow in just all sorts of wildflowers. That probably is a more immediate Return on investment in their mind, then even, you know, the wildlife will respond, but it probably doesn't happen anywhere near as quickly as, like, oh my god, like the coneflowers and the lupin and the, you know, compass plants and the, um, you know, just uh, the explosion of color on the landscape. Is that a, uh, is that an accurate assessment, Wes?
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, for me, after conducting some burns, and we get into that growing season following, every day you visit that site, it's like Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. You're trying to anticipate what's going to be there, and and you see, oh my gosh, I've never seen, you know, swamp milkweed here here before, Mm -hmm. or, you know, just all these different plants, and so it's, you can really relate it back to fire, and, and you're just releasing something from the soil that um, just seems like no other management tool can do.
1: Yeah. Right on. Um, one of the highlights here that you guys wanted to be sure to talk about, uh, was the Shaw nature reserve. And I think Dylan, that's one of your projects. Tell me about, um, the Shaw nature reserve and what you got going on there.
3: Yeah. So our crew is based out of, uh, Missouri Botanical Garden, Shaw nature reserve there in Gray Summit, Missouri. Um, it's about 2,400 acres. Um, it's a, a really pristine example of, you know, Missouri's landscapes and what they should look like. Um, they've got some beautiful prairies, some really nice open woodlands, um, some of the nice bottom, nicest bottomland forests, you know, on the Merrimack River that there probably are in the state. Um, and it's open to the public. There's trails. Um, there's kind of a auto tour, drive-through auto tour, um. A lot of cool stuff out there, a lot of cool, a lot of cool native plants. They do um, a lot of seed collection out there. They have a crew um, and our crew kind of helps them out. We help them um, do some invasive species work and we do some seed collection. They've got a really big project right now. It's the Wolf Run Grassland Restoration. It's it was like a hundred acre Plus field, old field that had grown up in, in cedars and just a, just a massive invasives, and, hmm. and they've cleared that and are working on restoring that big grassland restoration, um, kind of trying to build, you know, what, resemble what you know, kind of a oak savanna would have looked like in, in Missouri, since there's really not much left, you know, hmm. of that of that ecotype here anymore. Um, really cool place. Um, I highly recommend if you're in the area, go stop by and. You know drive drive the auto tour and take a hike you won't regret it yeah
1: go ahead wes
0: i was just going to say that the the folks at shaw are really good partners uh we just recently collaborated with them and the missouri prescribed fire council we hosted two days of fire training at their facility mm-hmm. and so we the friday was for conservation uh professionals so we had folks from our missouri pfqf team from the Illinois PFQF team and then uh, National Deer Association, NWTF. Um, and then the second day was for prescribed burn association members. And so uh, they were really good gracious in hosting us. We were able to use their facilities for an indoor classroom and then get out in the field and get some fire on the ground.
1: I'm assuming, you know, a nature reserve like that is pretty high profile and having doing the work there like opens a lot of people's eyes in the general public up to well this isn't as scary you know when it's done in the hands of professionals and artists and the response is um you know pretty easy for people to see that are coming through a nature reserve um wes i want to you know you talked about prescribed the public's response um to prescribed fire in missouri there's also been a legislative response to prescribed fire in missouri tell us about the prescribed burning act
0: yeah, so that came about uh, kind of started about f- three to four years ago, and the whole purpose was uh, to establish uh, liability pertaining to prescribed fire. So previously, there it was undefined, mm. so there was just uncertainty for uh, prescribed fire practitioners or artists, you know, of what their liability would be. So it's easy for state agencies, federal agencies to they have that immunity built in, Uh, but for a private landowner, it was unknown. Mm -hmm. And so the legislative effort was, you know, put together by numerous conservation organizations. Uh, PFQF was one that supported. And, you know, we were able to define liability. So a a prescribed fire practitioner burner uh, would need to be proven uh, negligent. To be liable from damages from fire and from smoke
1: all right andrew let's we talked a lot about the mechanics of burns for quail Uh, you know what's hit us with a you know a a right hook on the that you know maybe a statistic that demonstrates the value of burning for quail
2: yeah absolutely you know kind of i touched on it earlier um kind of going back to the quail restoration landscape um, some of the the studies that we've been doing there, um, specifically with the two C's, that's you know I, I helped out with that. I'm the most most familiar with that. But you know that that intensive management and the primary management tool is prescribed fire on on those properties uh, where some of those listening points were, um, <clears throat> where you're where you're banking, you know, 20 plus coveys and losing count, um, almost needing a second person to help uh, listen for all of them. I mean that that's for me that's you know, the proof in the pudding right there, Um, you know, and then, you know, consistently having over a bird per acre density um, on that farm. I mean, that's, that's, you know, proof number two. So, you know, these, these management activities are definitely helping, Um, you know, from a a historical aspect, um, you know, working with private landowners as farm bill biologists. um, I know Wes has heard this too, that, you know, Hey, I, you know, we used to have quail in here, we just don't have anymore. Well, you know, granddad my dad you know we all saw they all saw birds on the property but we just don't see them anymore well you look at some of the aerial imagery from you know 30 40 years ago and it's wide open grassland you know and and farms weren't thousand acre farms they were you know average size was 40 60 acres and they were producing multiple species of of crops Um, you know now we're just kind of in a monoculture crop society rotation with corn and soybean um, on large tracts of lands. Um, there was plenty of edge back then. And looking back at the, those those aerial photography maps, you can you can see that. And then if you overlay current photography over it, I mean, you you can tell, you know, the, the timber is encroached in, you know, the edge of the timber is encroached in, you know, reducing the size of grasslands. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, all oh, the turkeys are eating all the quail. Well, the reason why you're seeing more turkeys is because you got a lot you know, bigger tracts of timber and the timber's expanding. Um, mm-hmm. And so by, by utilizing management activities like fire, um, you're able to keep that woody encroachment bay like I referenced earlier. Um, and, and, you know, I, I had said earlier as well that, you know, this is absolutely replicable, uh, uh, not just in Missouri, I mean, in all Midwestern states and any states that have, you know, upland habitat, upland wildlife. So, um, you know, that, that right there, I mean, as long as you've got the landowner base that are willing to do the work, you know, because it, it does take work, I'm not gonna lie, mm-hmm. but you get those landowners that, you know, reminisce back whenever they could go out and, and just nothing but bob's whistling in the background in the spring, you know, they're going back to that reminiscent era for them, you know, and being able to bring that back. That was probably one of the, the, uh, the best parts of, of being a farm biologist and helping those producers achieve their goal of hearing those quail back on their property. Um and all it did, you know, took a little bit of management and direction on our side, um, on the biologist side of things, but it really it was it was the landowners that were doing the work and and, you know, were able to achieve their goals. So it was just part fun being part of that for sure. But you know, like I said, you know, th- this is ab- absolutely replicable elsewhere. It's just gonna take a little bit of a little bit of uh, elbow grease to make it happen.
1: Yeah, right. Um I'm gonna circle to each of you for a closing thought, but you know, Andrew, as you're talking about, you know uh, you know, there's lots of turkeys and there's, you know, the grasslands have kind of become timber. If you're a landowner listening to this podcast and like, gosh, I just don't have any quail on my property anymore. I don't have any pheasants on my property. I'm just, and, and part of your thought, and we've all heard this before. Hey, and I haven't done, you know, I, we ha- haven't done anything. Nothing's changed. Something has changed on your property It's just happened gradually over time. Um, You know, the upland habitat and upland birds require management. You may not think anything's changed over the course of the last 10 years, but the biodiversity has gone away. You know, you, you probably have very little flowers. Mixed in with your grasslands. Your grasslands might be one or two species. You might just have a sea of brome. Or a sea of fescue. Depending on what state you're living in. And where where we're talking about. Things have changed. And back in the day. Fire was on the landscape. Bison were on the landscape. They were managing naturally. The grassland habitat. That doesn't exist. Without human interaction today that's where prescribed fire comes into play so if in your mind you're thinking boy all the birds are gone and we haven't done anything that is the problem <laughs> that that is the, the the opportunity to realize we have to do something differently so uh, let's go around the horn dylan our artist our fire artist so my favorite component of this episode uh what's um what's your final thought for us dylan
3: yeah i would just say you know build it and they will come um you know if you don't have the habitat there you're just gonna you're gonna keep losing biodiversity Hmm. um you know get those habitat management practices on the ground if if you're intimidated by fire don't be um find someone who's burning get out there see how it's done get comfortable with it and, and maybe you can get you know some fire on your landscape at home but biggest thing is you know do something, get out there and get your hands dirty, do a little habitat work and, and they'll be back. So
1: I like how you're, that's, that's, you're playing on my baseball sensibilities with building and they will come, right? <laughs> but it's true. It's true. You gotta, you gotta do, um, you gotta do that habitat management to have the birds respond. Uh, Wes, what's your, um, closing call for us?
0: Like Dylan said, you can do this. You can use this tool. It's available. And one of the best ways to do that, to overcome those hurdles, is getting engaged with the Local Prescribed Burn Association, or PVA. You know, it's a group of community members, landowners, and they're helping each other out, pooling their resources of, you know, sharing their knowledge, their uh, equipment, training, and then just most of all, people, you know, that are available to help on a burn. So uh, we've been been expanding PVA's in Missouri, Uh, We now have eight established ones in the state. The past six months, we've added three of them, and then we have four more pursuing development. So the model is out there. People wanting to help each other. So folks listening in, you can uh, Google Great Plains Fire Science Exchange and then prescribed burn associations. They've got an interactive map for the whole country, Mm. and you can see where those PBAs are located. And... Some of those aren't listed on there, so the, the map is continually being updated, but reach out to your local uh, quail biologist, your local resource professional, and talk about it. Ask, ask what they know of.
1: That's, that's a terrific point, uh, you know, you say PBA, and I was thinking Professional Bull Riders Association, but that, that, that's different. Um, s- tell us the, the website where they can find, no matter where they are in the country, they can find the prescribed burn associations.
0: I'll start in Missouri. If you're in Missouri, you can go to moprescribedfire.org and check out the PBA resources. But for across the country, it's the Great Plains Fire Science Exchange. And then you can go to their Prescribed Burn Association page.
1: Outstanding. That's that's wonderful information.
2: Um, Andrew, you get the mic drop. Oh, man. uh, No pressure, right? Um, You know, I, I think We've, we've definitely discussed how critical prescribed fire is, um, you know, not, not just having it on landscape, but increasing the, the adoption of it across, not just Missouri, but across the whole Midwest and and the, the country. Um, you know, there there's like the West had touched on there's resources out there, you know, PBAs, um, you know, you have wildlife biologists. We have our, our QF biologist team, um, you know, our Missouri department of conservation has a robust private lands division as well. Um, where they have over 50 uh, private land staff a, able to help you know i know there's there's similar outfits uh in other other states uh, with their state agencies but reach out i mean it, just get that conversation started let them know what your goals are uh, and they can absolutely uh, help you reach your reach your goals and like i said earlier you know it might not be an immediate turnaround but if you keep working on it it will ha- it will definitely happen um, and i know i a lot of what we do in Missouri, what Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever does in Missouri could absolutely not be possible without our partners. You know, NRCS, MDC, you know, uh, Sean H. Reserve, Raceland Alternative Energy, Purina and the Merritt's family. I mean, all of our partners make what we do possible. Mm I mean, definitely could not be done without them. And it couldn't be done without our exceptional team here in Missouri. Um, You want to talk about a team of go-getters, definitely I know but there's other states that have phenomenal PFQF teams as well, um, and that's that's where the rubber really hits the road. Um, so make sure you reach out to to PFQF field staff um, if you don't have any in your immediate area. Um, you can definitely still reach out; we'll be willing to help. But there's also other alternatives as well, whether that be the state agency or otherwise, and even even just going into your uh, county USDA office and getting that conversation started, you can you can get a lot taken care of then. So. Um, I'd say that that would be my mic job for sure. Uh, you know, putting fire on the ground can be a little intimidating, but if you have the right tools and, and go about it the right way, you yourself can become an artist like Dylan. Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: there we go. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm, I pronounced um, Raceland. Is that Raceland Alternative Energy? Raceline, yeah. Raceline, I, I think I pronounced it wrong twice now. So my apologies to our partners. Um, um, Raceline Alternative Energy. Um, you mentioned a great point, a um, terrific starting point no matter where you live. Go to quailforever.org under the conservation tab. You'll see, uh, see our find a biologist map. Click on that and you can enter your zip code and one of our biologists from quail forever, or Fe- pheasants forever will pop up. And that's a terrific starting point whether you live in Missouri or you know, Mississippi. Um, or Minnesota through Montana, a bunch of M states out there for you, Maryland. Um, You can find some of our biologists and sit down one-on-one and talk about how prescribed fire may fit into a federal program, um, a state program, or even um, a local chapter initiative. So sit down um, quailforever.org, conservation tab, find a biologist. All right, fellas, for Andrew White, Wes Buckite, and Dylan Jacobs. I'm Bob St. Pierre thanking you for listening. If you're not yet a member, please become a member at quailforever.org or pheasantsforever.org. We got an awesome membership deal going on with Shields right now. It's right there on our homepage. And um, one final hit for Bird Dogs for Habitat. Please. Uh, Make a donation and it will help our public land creator efforts through the Build a Wildlife Area. Um, And as always, I'm reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.